Could I get Jan to join me? Most of the time we think of um, Jesus' birth as a joyful event, full of hope and wonder and wonderful things and miracles. Uh, you know, there's the, the story of the glorious angels who came and welcomed Jesus with songs in the middle of the night. Uh, there, there's the shepherds who came from the fields to worship him. There's the wealthy men from some other nation that came to give him honor and gifts uh, and, and reverence this new king of Israel. Everything seems wonderful and happy until you peel back just one thin layer of the story and you realize that the shepherds are there to welcome the king because the leaders of the Jews, the, the people who should have been there to welcome the Messiah, were distracted with greed and pride and false interpretations of the Bible they were supposed to understand. And then you realize that people from other countries had to come to honor him because the only people in his country that recognized Jesus as the Messiah, the King, were Mary and Joseph, the shepherds, and a couple old prophets who were loitering around the temple. And then there was this murderous king. The political environment around Jesus was so bad that he would, his life was threatened and he had to flee to refuge in Egypt. It's that last one that sets the context for our message today. And I think that Herod's violence against the children in Bethlehem helps us understand that the story of Jesus' birth is probably best understood through the eyes of a refugee. They were this little family, forced to leave their home and travel to a, a city they didn't belong in because of a census that they were subjugated to because of the, the Roman government. The baby Jesus was born into a straw-filled manger wrapped in strips of rags. Uh, then they were this little family and they were forced to, to flee in the middle of the night to escape Herod's soldiers. Jesus was born into subjugation, political turmoil, violence, and he had this purpose to transform people's hearts, to change the greed to generosity, to change the pride to humility and service, uh, to change the hatred and violence to love and service. And he did this, a message of hope and possibility and change wrapped in the clothes of a refugee. Today, there are roughly 35 million refugees in our world. 35 million refugees who are escaping war and persecution, disaster, all of these things. It's a small fraction of the 8 billion people that live here in this world, but it's not a small thing to those people who are forced to flee their homes. I've recently made friends with a family who arrived in the United States just a few months ago from Lebanon. They were in a refugee camp. Before Lebanon, they came from Syria, and they were fleeing civil war. Some of their family members were killed in that civil war. They uh, escaped with their lives, uh, but uh, some damage was done because a rocket came to their apartment building. And uh, there's a little girl I read about. Her name is Aliyah. She came from Syria too, Aleppo, Syria. And Aliyah, uh, she's just seven. She's still in Lebanon. Unlike my friends who came here recently, uh, she's awaiting with uncertainty what her future might be. 
She remembers leaving Syria. Her mom took her from her grandparents' home, and, and as she was carrying her as a little girl, um, they're hurrying through the streets, and she remembers seeing the dead bodies that were laying in the streets and praying for them and weeping just because it was such an awful sight. She says, I miss my friend Raua. She says, I miss going to school with her. She had pigeons and she hopes that somebody is taking care of her pigeons, but she's not sure. She says, I miss my home a lot. I hope that one day we'll be back and things will be just like before. I wish that I could tell Aaliyah that things will be better, that, that it'll be back to like it was before, but that is rarely ever the case for a family that's fleeing violence. Now, wouldn't it be nice if life were easy for refugees? Wouldn't it be nice if when they got to where they were going, there was people to welcome them and resources to provide for them and money and, and, and a place that they could live and all of the things, a job, the things that they would need, right? Wouldn't it be nice if they were just treated as though they were part of the family? But that's not generally the case. Um, refugees live often a long time in uncertainty. Many refugees live in camps that have too small of tents or shanty huts with inadequate water, insufficient insulation, limited bathroom facilities. And they live in these camps for seven to 10 years, sometimes even more, awaiting kind of in this middle ground. They're not really accepted into a refugee program in a country. They're just waiting in no man's land um, in these difficult circumstances. No way to return home, little money, and uncertainty about the future. The determination and resilience of a family that flees their home is incredible. And every time I see a family make friends with a new family that is dealing with this circumstance, I'm amazed at how they're coping. With this context, let's turn to the story of Jesus, a refugee child, and we'll find that story in Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came from Jerusalem saying, Where is he who is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Israel with him. Now, Satan had been working for years and years and years to distract the people of God so they weren't paying attention when the Messiah came. And he was working for years to harden the hearts of the, the Romans so that they would be very opposed to the Jews so when Jesus came, when the Messiah came, he would be in the worst possible circumstance to accomplish his job. He was determined that the Messiah's mission would be obscured and, if possible, brought to an early end. But God and his, has his agencies, methods beyond what we're able to see. And so when the Israelites were ignoring him, um, God brought other people to worship this newborn king. We don't know how long after Jesus' birth this was. It may have been just a few days. And they had been, God had been setting this up for a couple years until Jesus would come. It may have been a couple years. We don't really know when this story happens. But uh, just a little bit later in this chapter, these foreigners tell the king that uh, some two-year period has passed since they first saw the star about these people, some translations say they're wise men. Others use the Greek word magi and just 
put that into English. And some say that they were kings, or at least high officials from some country in the East. We really don't know, except that they brought three gifts. And so now we sing the song, We Three Kings of Orient Are from the East, right? That's really all we know about these kings. There's no indication of what they are, um, except that when they came, they came and were accepted into the king's court, and all Jerusalem was abuzz. So they must have been officials of some kind, or maybe scientists, at least uh, in that version of a scientist in their day. The word magi is a word that comes from uh, Persian, and so we sometimes think that these were um, what we would know today as Iranian, uh, but they were, they were from the east somewhere, and magi is a, kind of a term for astrologers, which today is just a bunch of nonsense. Back then, it was a little bit of nonsense mixed with some scientific research. They were studying the stars like astronomers today do, and at the same time, they were looking and they were mixing in pagan philosophies about the gods in the skies. And so these men were spiritual and scientific, and they're looking at the stars and they see a new star, and they start to research in their literature, their spiritual literature. The, the Jewish scriptures had been translated into the Greek language for years and years and years by this point. And so these astrologers, these magi, they were looking for an answer for where this star came from. And in the Hebrew scriptures, they found this. Um, in, um, in Numbers chapter 24, verse 17, a star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. Determined to pay homage to this prophesied king, these men packed up their things, and they came to Jerusalem, where they met a king who uh, was curious about what they were doing, and he invited the high officials and the spiritual leaders to give them some insight. And when he asked where would this ruler come from, they said he would come from uh, Bethlehem because Micah 5, chapter 5, verse 2 says a ruler will come from Bethlehem that would shepherd Israel. So this is the context. This is the story that, that uh, they're hearing. And, and so Herod somehow in this time, uh, he, he secrets them away. He brings them aside secretly and he ascertains from them what time the star had appeared. And then he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And of course, all of us know that that was not a good intention. He did not want to worship him. It was uh, a lie hoping to get more information from these guys. Well, after listening to the king, they went on their way. They get to Bethlehem and we don't know how long it's been. It may be that... Uh, they get to the manger that Jesus was born in. Or it may be that uh, it's been a, a few months or a couple of years, and this little family has settled down into Bethlehem, and they have a home and a place to work, and they've settled in. Either way, the foreigners bring gifts to honor this newborn king. They bow before him, and they worship. In a dream that night, the wise men are told by an angel not to go back to Herod, and so they leave for their country another way. And that same night, Joseph is, uh, an angel appears to Joseph as well. And in chapter 2, verse 13, we're told, Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. 
for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And so he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt, I called my son. I don't know about you, but there are some missing pieces in this story. How long were they in Egypt? What happened there? What was it like? Matthew doesn't give us any of those details. But let's just think about what they might have looked like. If they were still in a stable, they would have packed what meager belongings they had and they would have gone to Egypt. It wouldn't have been that difficult. But what would have happened if it had been a, a little while, a couple of years maybe? Mary has her kitchen all set up the way she likes it. Joseph has his tools and, and his shop set up for his business. And in the middle of the night, they have to take whatever they can and leave right then. What would your life be like if you had to take only the essentials that you could carry on your back and start walking? And maybe never, ever, ever come back to home. That's what Mary and Joseph and Jesus did. Matthew tells us nothing about Jesus' time in Egypt. Maybe he learned to eat kosherie, uh, a meal that uh, is popular in that region today. Maybe he learned the local language. Maybe he had some time there to make friends. Uh, maybe Joseph um, started to figure out a, a job there. We, we really don't know. No matter what it was, being displaced from your home and especially being displaced from your country is difficult, very difficult. Thankfully, God foresaw this very thing happening, and He had these wise men bring these special gifts. Um, there's all kinds of details that Matthew leaves out, but he includes these three things that are given to, to Mary and Joseph. The gold that's uh, given to them is valuable, and it's something that they can trade for things. They can use it as money, uh, but it's also uh, kind of prophetic in a way. The sanctuary is made out of lots and lots of gold. And that gold in the sanctuary represents the righteousness of God and His pure and holy plan to save us. Jesus came as God's righteousness to earth. And, and then there's the frankincense. In the sanctuary, the frankincense was used as part of the, the altar of, um, of incense. That special formula included frankincense. And in a way, uh, there, there's a prophecy here that Jesus would be the intercessor between God and man, that, that he would make intercession for us. And then there's the myrrh, uh, this embalming herb or mineral. I'm not sure exactly what it is. And, and it would be used in embalming for, a, you know, a good flavor when somebody had died. And, and in a way, we're, we're looking at the very beginning of his life, a prophecy about his death and the time that he would be the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Like I said, there's a lot of details that Matthew leaves out of this story, but he is very clear about why he leaves those details out. Because he wants not a focus on Mary and Joseph and Jesus' experience in Egypt, but he wants them to, the, the, the readers of Matthew uh, in, in his day, he wants them to grasp that Jesus is like Israel. He's a second Israel. If you read this uh, original quote from Hosea 11, 
Uh, it says, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. And if you were to come across this just reading through the book, you would not have considered this a prophecy of the Messiah. It does not look like a prophecy of the Messiah. And do you remember that time, if you have read Jesus' story, it's after Jesus dies and is resurrected, there's a couple guys that are walking to Emmaus, and Jesus is on the road with them to Emmaus, and it says that he opened up to them the scriptures, um, all the laws, law and the prophets, everything about the Messiah. And I think maybe uh, Matthew had this experience with Jesus, where Jesus tied together the story of Israel and the story of the Messiah. Because Matthew sees this as a prophecy. When Israel comes out of Egypt, Jesus has to do the same thing. And and notice this about Jesus' life. Jesus is born in Bethlehem, which not coincidentally is the place where Jacob, who was later named Israel, has a dream about a ladder that connects heaven and earth. Jesus is that ladder that connected heaven and earth. Jesus fled to Egypt as a refugee, just like Jacob did, who when there was a famine in the land, he had to flee as a refugee to Egypt as well. Jesus came out of Egypt once it was safe, and Israel came out of Egypt in the time of Moses. Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness. The Israelites spent 40 years in the wilderness. And Jesus was lifted up on the cross so that all who look to him can live. Just like in the wilderness, when the Israelites were in rebellion, and complaining, and they were being bitten by these snakes. A snake was lifted up on a pole, and whenever they looked, they would be healed and live. Can you see the pattern? Jesus is the second Israel. And Matthew wanted the Jews who were reading that gospel to recognize that Jesus stands in their place. He's the one who takes their sin. And I think the same is true for you and me today. He's not just the second Israel, he's the second Adam. He stands in the place of all humanity. He shares our humanity, he shares our experiences. If you are a refugee, Jesus can relate. He was a refugee too. If you're lonely, Jesus can relate. He was abandoned and left alone. If you have been abused, Jesus can relate. He experienced every form of abuse, bullying as a child, physical violence, public exposure and shame, abandonment, verbal abuse, and much more. If you are suffering from sickness and pain, Jesus can relate. He experienced considerable pain as well. If you are tempted and tried, Jesus can relate. He was tempted in every point that we get tempted in. But praise be to God, when he stood in the place of Israel, he didn't complain like they did. He didn't rebel like they did. He didn't leave God. He was faithful even to the point of death. When he was tempted, he didn't sin. When he was abused, he conquered through the power of love. Jesus stands in the place of all humanity as victor, experiencing and knowing all that we experience and know, and yet remaining relationally faithful to God and to all humanity. Jesus stands in our place, no matter the cost to him. With this little family off in Egypt, Matthew goes on to tell the story that is so common to most refugees, and yet so awful that really there's no words that can adequately describe it. Look in Matthew chapter 2, verse, 20, verse 16. 
Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Back in the 16th century, the church in Coventry, England would perform a Christmas play. And in that play, they would sing a carol that commemorated the massacre of the innocents in Bethlehem. Today, we know that uh, song, that carol as the Coventry Carol, and it attempts to capture some of the emotion of this awful event. It goes like this, Luli, Lule, thou little tiny child, bye-bye, Luli, Lule. O sisters too, how may we do for to preserve this day, this poor youngling for whom we sing, bye-bye, Luli, Lule. Herod the king in his raging charged, he hath this day his men of might in his own sight, all young children to slay. That woe is me, poor child, for thee, and ever mourn in May, for thy parting neither say nor sing, bye-bye, Luli, Lule. What do we do with such atrocity? And what do we do with the reality that, that an angel came to Joseph to warn him to flee and save the life of Jesus, but he didn't go and warn the other families. I can't give you a good answer for all of the atrocities that have been done in the world or why some have been saved and others perish. But I think the Bible gives us a framework for understanding God's part in this story. Turn to Revelation chapter 12. And you'll read about a war. It goes like this. War arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. Go back a few verses to verse 1, and you read this. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon, his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. When Herod sent men to kill those innocent children in Bethlehem and that surrounding region, it was the devil using Herod as a pawn trying to kill Jesus. The massacre there wasn't just, it wasn't an intention of God. It was a casualty of war. Innocent people caught in the crossfire between two warring armies, the army of God and the army of Satan. God couldn't allow Satan to, to kill Jesus before the time came. Remember Jesus says something like this, no one can take my life, I give it of myself, I give it willingly. The, the, Satan, if he was to take Christ's life early, the work wouldn't have been done, and that just couldn't happen. And so angels, they, they fought day in and day out, this time and many other times, I'm sure, throughout Jesus' life to prevent Satan uh, from cheating in this game, in this war. I don't know why God didn't save the little children in Bethlehem or why He doesn't prevent the atrocities that lead millions of people to have to flee their homes today. 
What I do believe, though, is that God is not responsible for those atrocities. If you want to point the finger at somebody or raise a fist at somebody, then point your finger at Satan. He is the one that causes these things, and he, trying to do harm to God, does not care who gets in the way. Every time we look deeply at this subject of suffering, that we have to realize that God is the good guy in this battle between good and evil. He says in Proverbs 18.10, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. And when for whatever reason suffering comes anyway, God provides comfort. 2 Corinthians 1.3 tells us, blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Back in Matthew chapter 2, we find Jesus, a refugee in Egypt, coming back safe from the murderous intent of Satan and Herod. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And so he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel." The story could end right there. Went back to the land of Israel. But like most refugee stories, Jesus' family doesn't get to go back to that home that they left. They don't get to go back to things as they once were. Verse 22 says, When he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. I wonder who welcomed that family in Nazareth. Did they have a place to go? Had their money run out by then? Uh, did, did he have to struggle to find a job, maybe apprentice with somebody, get to be known before he could make, uh, make a, a living for his family? Did the synagogue there welcome them in with open arms? These are questions we don't often ask when we read this story of Jesus, but I think they're critical to the story of the gospel. When Jesus was asked what was the most important law, you might remember that he said to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. But then he added another second command, he said, that was uh, similar to that one. And he quoted from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, when he said, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Do you remember what happened right after that? The man asked, who is my neighbor? And Jesus told a story about a foreigner who helped him. And he said, he's your neighbor. When you read the whole chapter of Leviticus 19, you come across this verse, and you should read the whole chapter of Leviticus 19. It's a good chapter. Verse 34 says this, You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Wow. If Jesus walked through our door in the clothes and face of a refugee child, would we welcome him? This is the real question of Christmas, isn't it? This is the real story of the gospel. From now until God brings an end to the suffering and turmoil that Satan has caused, he invites us to treat foreigners and refugees with the same compassion and love that God treats us. He calls us 
to treat them as our own family. He invites us to treat them as we should treat Jesus. I'm so thankful that the story of Jesus doesn't end with his family refugees in Egypt. He goes on to minister, to die on the cross, to be raised again, and now stands at the right hand of the Father in heaven, and he says there will be a time very soon that he brings an end to all of this, all the suffering, all the stuff that causes pain and sorrow and harm. Read with me in Revelation chapter 21, verses 3 to 5. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, just to make sure that we understand that this is a promise. He says, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Will you stand with me and sing 